Again, it is good to he- to see all of you here this morning. But as we turn our attention to the preaching of God's Word, please open with me in God's Word to Revelation chapter 20. Revelation 20, as we continue through this series in the book of Revelation. While you're turning there, I know that you recognize that I am an 80s child. I grew up in the 1980s, and for many of my childhood years, uh, my life could be explained by how much time I spent listening to the radio, uh, to the various music that would be playing, or possibly watching uh, MTV back when it was actually known as music television, and they showed music videos. Uh, But there in the 1980s, there was a popular song. It was released in 1987 by a band that you may be familiar with, R.E.M. And uh, in that year, R.E.M. released a song with the title, It's the End of the World as We Know It, and I Feel Fine. And uh, some of you may even now start to have that chorus going through your mind because it's such a catchy tune. Um, But while the title is known, and the song and the chorus repeats that title several times, almost no one remembers the words to the song itself, which is probably a good thing since the song itself, uh, Michael Stipe, the singer and songwriter, admits was really just him writing down a stream of consciousness. It, It makes no sense. But for many, the title, the words of this song, really express how they feel about the end of the world. That we don't really need to focus on the end of the world. The end of the world is not important. What matters is how I live now. And so a more contemporary statement that has been used is YOLO, you only live once. Make the most out of the time you're given. For many, it's not so much about caring of what will come in our future, but in living for today. Yet this morning, I hope we recognize we must not treat the end of the world so lightly. The scripture shows us that living this way is foolish. And so we come this morning to the scriptures that show us what is coming when the end of the world arrives. This is then recorded for us here in Revelation chapter 20, verses 7 to 15. So let us read together then these verses from God's word. Now when the thousand years have expired, Satan will be released from his prison and will go out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together to battle, whose number is as the sand of the sea. They went up on the breadth of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints in the beloved city. And fire came down from God out of heaven and devoured them. The devil who deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. And I saw a great white throne and him who sat on it, from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away, and there was found no place for them. 
And I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God, and books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to their works by the things which were written in the books. The sea gave up the dead who were in it, and death and Hades delivered up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one according to his works. Then death and Hades were cast in the lake of fire. This is the second death. And anyone not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. Brothers and sisters, with these sobering words before us, let us once again come before our Lord in prayer. O Father, may we take seriously the end of the world and what you reveal to us this morning in witnessing what is to come. so that we may be prepared, Lord, so that we may be ready. Until this day will not surprise us, this day of last judgment. But it will be a day we look forward to when this world comes to an end and the world to come will begin for us to enjoy for all eternity in Christ. But Father, may Christ be magnified this morning before us as your word is preached. And may your spirit so be at work, Father, through your word as it is preached. That sinners will be saved by Christ's grace. And that saints that have been saved by Christ's grace, Father, that we will be edified and encouraged by your word to live with the end of the world in our minds. So, Father, we pray for all these things in the name of the beautiful Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Brothers and sisters, the message of this, of, 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 God's word this morning for us is quite simple. It's that the end of the world is coming. The end of the world is coming. And the end of the world here unfolds through this vision in two scenes. The first scene is recorded for us in verses 7 to 10 of the end of Satan through Christ's victory. Then the second scene is recorded for us in verses 11 to 15 with the end of sinners through God's judgment. So there's the end of Satan through Christ's victory and then the end of sinners through God's judgment. Let's then begin by looking more closely at this first scene with the end of Satan through Christ's victory. And of course, through the book of Revelation, the Apostle John has been recording these symbolic visions of prophecy from God for Christ's churches to be encouraged as we struggle and suffer in this present evil age. And after all of the trials and troubles and tribulation of this world and the opposition and oppression of Satan and his demonic deception... 
Christ will return to this earth to defeat the coming Antichrist and his armies along with the false prophets, which are then both cast alive into the lake of fire, while the conquered armies of the nations who united together with them are then fed to the birds under God's judgment. So it is through Christ's victorious return that the kingdoms of this world will become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, who will reign on this earth together with his resurrected church for 1,000 years, which symbolizes a long and perfect period of time of Christ's millennial kingdom. And it's during this future millennium of a thousand years that Satan is imprisoned so that he can no longer deceive the nations. Listen again to how this imprisonment is described back in verse 3. There we have an angel who binds Satan. We read in verse 3, And he cast him into the bottomless pit and shut him up and set a seal on him so that he should deceive the nations no more till the thousand years were finished. But after these things, he must be released for a little while. You see then that in God's sovereignty over history, After Christ's reign on earth for a thousand years, Satan must be released for a little while. And that's what we now see happening in these verses. Satan is released by God for one final rebellion. Satan is released from prison according then to God's sovereign plan. But why? Why would God let Satan back out of prison on a a kind of parole? Well, Robert Mounts makes this insightful point when he writes, perhaps the most reasonable explanation for this rather unusual parole is to make plain that neither the designs of Satan nor the waywardness of the human heart will be altered by the mere passing of time. Once loosed from prison, Satan picks up where he left off and people rally to his cause. So what does Satan immediately do? But he returns to deceiving the nations as he had been doing through the age that we're currently living in until he is imprisoned under lock and key. As we've seen, this is how Satan works, through deception. That's why Jesus describes Satan in John 8, 44, that he is a liar and the father of lies. See, Satan deceives us with lies by telling us that our lives will be better off pursuing our desires rather than pursuing God's glory. Satan deceives us with lies by by causing us to doubt God's goodness through questioning our need to obey his law and to submit to him as Lord. Satan deceives us with lies by leading us to look to ourselves to make our own destiny instead of looking to Christ for our future hope. And so John here sees Satan's deception once more going out into the entire world, to the four corners of the earth. And you know what we learn from the nations here? These nations that live through the millennium? 
how stubborn sin is. I mean, think about it. They have lived with Christ on the earth. Christ is ruling over his kingdom. And the moment that period of time ends and Satan begins to deceive the nations, they flock back to him. See, we don't need Satan to live in rebellion against God. He could be locked up and our hardness of heart would remain and still sin against God. So we are not innocent victims of Satan's deception. As if mankind would be good without Satan's lies or his power at work in this world. The problems of this world are not merely because of Satan and all that he is seeking to do in this world, but they begin here in the sinful human heart. So Satan manipulates our already sinful hearts to do his wicked will, which will once again occur after the millennium when the nations around the world are deceived to gather in battle against us. And these nations unite together under who is called here Gog and Magog. Which is not simply referring to the names of a world superpower which will arise after or or in a final world war. But like so much of Revelation symbolism, this comes from the Old Testament. Where we read of the rise and fall of Gog and Magog. Gog is the prince or king of the people and land of Magog. And this is prophesied in the prophet Ezekiel, by the prophet Ezekiel in Ezekiel chapters 38 and 39. But we need to understand what's happening there in uh, the broader prophecies of Ezekiel. Because in Ezekiel chapters 36 and 37, we have the nation of Israel that's, that's resurrected and restored to their land. And once God saves them through his Messiah and and, and resurrects them and restores them, we come to chapters 38 and 39, where God comes from the north to wage war against God's people. And so listen then to what we read in, in Ezekiel 38. That chapter begins, Now the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, set your face against Gog of the land of Magog, the prince of Rosh, Meshach, and Tubal, and prophesy against him and say, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am against you, O Gog, the prince of Rosh, Meshach, and Tubal. I will turn you around, put hooks in your jaws, and lead you out with all your army, horses and horsemen, all splendidly clothed, a great company with bucklers and shields, all of them handling swords. Persia, Ethiopia, and Libya are with them, all of them with shield and helmet. Gomer and all its troops, the house of Togermah from the far north and all its troops, many people are with you. See how the nations then of the world are gathering together under God in this battle against Israel. And so we go on then to see once these nations gather together to attack God's people, 
that it's recorded they will be judged by God and come under his wrath as he destroys them. Which we can then read the beginning of chapter 39. Listen to verses 1 to 8. For God continues to prophesy through Ezekiel, and you, son of man, prophesy against Gog and say, thus says the Lord God, behold, I am against you, O Gog, the prince of Rosh, Meshach, and Tubal, and I will turn you around and lead you on, bringing you up from the far north and bringing you against the mountains of Israel. Then I will knock the bow out of your left hand and cause the arrows to fall out of your right hand. You shall fall upon the mountains of Israel, you and all your troops and all the peoples who are with you. I will give you to birds of prey of every sort and the beasts of the field to be devoured. You shall fall on the open field, for I have spoken, says the Lord God. And I will send fire on Magog and on those who live in security in the coastlands. Then they shall know that I am the Lord. So I will make my holy name known in the midst of my people Israel, and I will not let them profane my holy name anymore. Then the nations shall know that I am the Lord, the Holy One of Israel. Surely it is coming, and it shall be done, says the Lord. This is the day of which I have spoken. So we have the destruction of Gog and Magog under God's judgment. You know what then happens in the book of Ezekiel? Come to chapters 40 to 48, where Israel is then welcomed into God's presence, which is revealed through a new city and temple. So there is the promise of resurrection, followed by this battle of their enemies which when God destroys them in judgment leads to the glories of a future in God's presence. See how this hope then is given to Israel through the prophet Ezekiel in the midst of their own struggles and suffering. And brothers and sisters, it is this hope that is fulfilled for the true Israel of God in Revelation, which is Christ's church. And we see this then being recorded for us in this final war at the end of the age. So this prophetic fulfillment from Ezekiel will take place when the nations of the world will once more be gathered together to battle God's people through Satan's deception. And in Revelation, we see that their number is too great to even count because their number is as the sand of the sea. So John sees their forces coming together then and surrounding the camp of the saints and the beloved city of Jerusalem. But as is so often true through Revelation, I, I don't understand this literalistically. Since Jerusalem represents Zion, which is the holy city of God's people, and the saints of Christ's church would hardly fit within the borders of the ancient city of Jerusalem. But the point here is that the nations have come together to invade the camp of the saints, which would be the home that Christ's church finally finds in this world with Christ after all of the wandering as pilgrims that the church 
continues to endure through this age. So they are together as God's people and surrounded by his enemies. And what happens next? But fire comes down from God in heaven and devours the nations. Again, this is what we just heard Ezekiel prophesying in 39 verse 6. Let me read it again. And I will send fire on Magog and on those who live in security in the coastlands. They shall know that I am the Lord. But do you see how salvation from beginning to end is the work of God? It's completely the work of God. And so here, our victory over the powers of this world is also completely the work of God. After all, what did the saints have to do when the nations gathered to battle against them? Nothing. Nothing. It is God who protects them. God who takes care of them. God who destroys the enemies surrounding them. And their faith in Christ knew that he would not let them down. So they trusted him to triumph over his enemies. Now, because of the parallels between the Battle of Armageddon, which we read of back in chapter 16 and 19, and this war, many see them as the same one, that we here have another recording of the Battle of Armageddon. But I think it's important to remember that the details are different. That battle, we see, was led by the Antichrist, while this battle is led by Satan. That battle was won by Christ's sword, while this battle is won by God's fire coming down from heaven. That battle led to the Antichrist and false prophet being cast in the lake of fire, while this battle led to Satan being cast out in the lake of fire. So it's after this battle, this final battle, that Satan joins the Antichrist and the false prophet in the lake of fire. Because Satan's ability to deceive the nations does not compare to God's power over his creation. And as the false trinity then of Satan and the Antichrist and the false prophet work together to oppose and to oppress Christ's church, so now this trinity is punished together for their wicked war against God and his people. Now when we think of Christ's victory here in this battle over Satan, brothers and sisters, let us not forget that this battle was already won at the cross. That's what Revelation has shown us. You go back to Revelation chapter 12. We have these two signs in heaven, right? The, the woman who gives birth to her child who is Christ, and then the dragon who is uh, the devil and Satan. And they're at war. But when, when the child is born and dies and is resurrected from the dead and ascends to heaven, Satan is cast out of heaven into the world. 
Which is why in chapter 12, verse 12, after Christ's death, resurrection, and ascension to heaven, we read, Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and, and you who dwell in them. Woe to the inhabitants of the earth and the sea, for the devil has come down to you having great wrath, because he knows that he has a short time. See, Satan knows he's going to lose. He knows his time on the earth is short. And so here, as we come to chapter 20, we see that this short time in the world is finally coming to an end. And you know, it, it, it may not seem short to us. I mean, it's been continuing now for about 2,000 years. But it's short when it's compared to eternity, in which Satan will find himself in the lake of fire. So the devil here is cast out from the earth and into the lake of fire and brimstone, this place of anguish and agony under God's wrath, which is far worse than the, the popular depictions of hell we, that we're all familiar with, right? You, you think of uh, Satan as a red-horned devil who lives surrounded by fire. But let's wrestle over this truth that the lake of fire and brimstone is a place of eternal torment. However literal these flames of fire may be, it is meant to show us the absolute horror of being burned alive, yet never consuming those who are in it. It's fire. The, the, the excruciating pain of punishment through it continues forever. Which is far greater punishment and pain than anything that we can imagine. And look at how long this torment lasts. With the devil together with the beast and the false prophet. He'll be tormented day and night. Forever and ever. In other words... It will never stop, and it will never end. Do you then see the futility of living in rebellion against God? This is the end that will come for all those who live in rebellion against God. Yes, Satan may deceive you into thinking that you can get away with it or that it will be worth it. But God here is showing you what is waiting for Satan and what is waiting for all of those who oppose Christ in their sin. So this is what unfolds to the first scene of the end of Satan through Christ's victory. But it also then brings us to the next scene with the end of sinners through God's judgment. The end of sinners through God's judgment, which is recorded for us then in verses 11 to 15. Because now that Satan has been cast into hell, we come to the great white throne judgment. Where the size of his throne reveals his superiority and majesty. Superiority and majesty of God who is sitting on the throne. 
And its whiteness symbolizes his righteousness and his purity. And the scene as it unfolds, it unfolds like the vision from Daniel chapter 7, verses 9 to 10, when the Ancient of Days is seated to judge. And there we read, the court was seated and the books were opened. That's what happens here. And with the coming of God as judge, we witness the end of this world as the earth and heaven flee away from God's face. Now, I don't know what that means exactly. But I know, know that no impurity or corruption can exist before God. This is why God said to Moses of his face in Exodus 33, verse 20, that you cannot see my face, for no man shall see my face and live. And now the holiness of God who is sitting on the throne to judge creation, creation itself flees away. Because this creation is groaning in corruption. And a cleansing will take place at the last judgment. Now, this cleansing is also described by the Apostle Peter in his second letter. So uh, listen to 2 Peter chapter 3. You could read more, but let me at least read verses 10 to 13 here. Read, but the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise, and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Both the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. Therefore, since all these things will be dissolved, what manner of persons ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be dissolved, being on fire, and the elements will melt with fervent heat? Nevertheless, we, according to his promise, look for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. And this is what is taking place before the very face of God, our judge. Where we see the first heaven and the first earth passing away. Which then will bring a new heaven and a new earth. Where there is no place found anymore for the presence of sin or its corruption. Now, as we... Consider again this chapter from Revelation, Revelation 20. Back in verse 5, we read of those who had been raised by Christ's return to reign with him on the earth for a thousand years, which is then called the first resurrection. But now, we read what happens at the end of verse 5, where the rest of the dead did not live again until the thousand years were finished. And now that the thousand years are finished and Christ is victorious in his final battle against Satan, we have the second resurrection taking place where the remaining dead also rise from their graves. And this resurrection includes all of sinful humanity who has ever lived, both small and great. Which means that God's judgment is universal. 
that no one will escape God's judgment, even in death. They will raise again to stand before God as judge. And so John then sees those who died at sea being given back from the sea for judgment. And he sees those who are in the place of death and Hades being delivered up for judgment. Now throughout Scripture, the rising of sinners to judgment is usually not referred to as a resurrection, since it is only Christ's church who has promised to receive the resurrection of life to enjoy in God's presence. But this does not mean that the rest of the dead will not come up from the ground to stand before God, because they too will physically rise to stand in God's presence where they will be judged for their sin. And when they stand before God, it's pictured as books being opened. Now, what are these books that are opened? Well, they're a record of all that we do in this world whether in thoughts, words, or deeds. Because nothing that we think, that we say, or that we do is hidden from God. But these are not the only books open, are they? There's one other book here that's mentioned, which is the Book of Life. And this book has the names recorded of all those who have been saved by Christ's grace. Now back in Christ's letter to the church in Sardis, of chapter 3, we read this promise given in verse 5, that he who overcomes shall be clothed in white garments, and I will not blot out his name from the book of life, but I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. So it is with these books that the dead are judged according to their works. Listen, with Christ, we do not need to fear this judgment. There's no reason to fear this judgment because he has died on the cross for all our sinful works, which is why our names are here recorded in the book of life. And Christ will confess our name before God's throne. But without Christ, oh listen, you will stand alone. Where you will be judged according to all that you have ever thought, all that you have ever spoken, all that you have ever done, which is written down and recorded for God. Now, it's popular for preachers today to speak of this judgment as if everyone's gathered together before God's throne and we have this marathon movie watching where everyone watches your life as a movie with everything you've ever done exposed on the screen to God and all of mankind. I think that this can actually be misleading and unhelpful. Because it doesn't keep the focus of this day of judgment where it should be. You know, when I think of others, if they were to watch my life, of course, I'd be ashamed and embarrassed of what others would think about how I've lived when all my secrets would be exposed before them. 
that's not the point here. Think about it. God already knows what we've done. So he doesn't need to watch this movie or to read these books. And John doesn't write of these books being read out loud for everyone to hear. So what is being revealed with the opening of these books? Well, it's God's justice in his judgment. That his punishment is in proportion to the sins that have been committed against him. Because you have done these things, because you have thought these things, because you have said these things, because you have carried out these things, this is your punishment. So these books show us that God is fair and that he gives to everyone what they deserve for their works in this world. Rather than being ashamed and embarrassed then of what others may think in this hypothetical binge-watching of, of movies, oh, let us grieve and lament how we have offended God for how we have lived with the days and years he has given us to glorify and serve. Because we will all be judged according to our works. And when God's judgment is complete, we then see death and Hades themselves being cast in the lake of fire. You know, the Apostle Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 15, 26, that the last enemy that will be destroyed is death. And death itself here, together with Hades, is now cast into the lake of fire, which is called the second death. Now you may remember Jesus, when he was speaking to his disciples, said in Matthew 10, verse 28, And do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. See, we will all face the first death, which is when our bodies die and are buried. But the second death is infinitely worse because it's when both the body and soul are tormented in hell under the judgment of God. And who is facing this future? Look at how chapter 20 ends. Anyone not found written in the book of life. Which means that all sinners, without Christ as your Savior, will be cast into the lake of fire for all eternity. No one here face this eternal future. as we consider the book of life I want us also to remember this means that we are not saved by our works our works are recorded in those other books 
We should not be, think that somehow what is recorded in those books from our lives was somehow good enough for us to be cleared by God as our judge, maybe with the help of Christ? No. God justifies us or declares us righteous in His sight because of what Christ has done for us alone. It is because Christ took upon Himself the very wrath of God we deserve. As He shed His blood, He nailed to the cross and died in our place. So it is because of Christ alone that our names are recorded in a different book. The book that was purchased through our Savior's blood. Let us then look to Him alone and not to our works. So that when we are judged, we plead the blood of Christ. Because it's in Him that we have life. And it's in Him and because of Him that our names are written in the book of life. So this morning, God's Word reveals to us that the end of the world is coming. Well, listen, the end of the world is coming. And since the end of the world is coming, oh, do not be deceived by Satan. Be ready for God's judgment to begin. And as you look at yourself and, and of the, the life you've, that you've lived, oh, confess your sins before God in repentance. As you come to Christ, believing in Him, and what he's done for sinners in love. Confess your sins and come to Christ. So you will be saved from the wrath of God that you deserve for your sin. Because when we're in Christ, his coming day of judgment is not a day of fearing condemnation. But it's a day of rejoicing that this world will end with all of its corruption, and wickedness, and, and evil. Christ then ushers us into a new world which is free from all of that sin and corruption and wickedness. Because it's where righteousness dwells. See, in Christ, we will not be condemned when the end of the world comes, but we will be freed by Christ's grace to enjoy a new world in God's presence that's free from all of the sin and suffering in this world. This is why we live with the end of the world in our minds. And it's why in our own confession of faith, the 689 Second 
London Confession. Our confession ends with a chapter on the Last Judgment. I'd encourage you when you have some time to read over this chapter, but listen to the final paragraph, paragraph three of this chapter. That as Christ would have us to be certainly persuaded that there shall be a day of judgment, both to deter all men from sin and for the greater consolation of the godly in their adversity, so will, uh, so will he have the day unknown to men that they may shake off all carnal security or security that we claim to have in this world and be always watchful because they know not at what hour the Lord will come and may be ever prepared to say, come Lord Jesus, come quickly, amen. May the end of the world lead us to be prepared to say, Come, Lord Jesus, come quickly. This should be the song that we sing. Not, it's the end of the world as we know it. I'll be fine. You know, that's not the only song that Michael Stipe wrote for REM. He wrote many songs through the years. But one's included that, that, that he wrote more recently in 2008 called Accelerate. And Stipe sounds very different in this song. Uh, there in this song, Stipe writes, Where is the ripcord, the trapdoor, the key? Where is the cartoon escape hatch for me? The city's burning. It's like it's ready to explode. Accelerate to make it slow. Make it go. I'm incomplete. I'm incomplete. I'm incomplete. So here he sings of his desire to escape from this world. And admits that he's incomplete. What's missing? What's missing from all unbelievers? The hope of Christ hope of the gospel. No wonder then there's so much frustration in this song because this world is corrupt and cursed and we all long for a better future. Yet it won't be found in anything we can do since we are part of the problem as sinners. And Satan continues to deceive the nations through this age. But when the end of the world comes, our hope is found in Christ alone. So may we all live looking forward to our eternal joy and blessedness in him. Let's pray. Oh, Father, thank you for allowing us to witness through this vision the end of the world. But may it lead us to be prepared for this day of judgment. To not be deceived 
by the lies of Satan. But to look to Christ and find in him our hope, our joy, and our future. Oh Lord, may we then live taking seriously the end of the world rather than dismissing it or staying so busy that it doesn't matter in our lives. But Father, may it indeed lead us to look to Christ and to find our eternal joy in him. Father, we pray for this then in the name of our sweet Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.